Hi, I'm Jen Sherlock, and welcome to my lifestyle podcast, Live Without a Nest. The podcast showcases people who live fearlessly and have the ambition to create something. I'll showcase change makers who have decided to let go of their safety net in order to survive. So let's jump right in. Hi, I'm Jen Sherlock. Welcome to my podcast, Live Without a Net. And I'm with the president and CEO of Comtech Systems, Mike Bertoli. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks, Jen. I appreciate you having me on. Of course. So let's talk about your childhood and how you learned to live without a net and how you got into your company. Can we hear how it all started? Sure. Pretty unique uh, start to my, my career. I grew up as a child on a farm in uh, Pittsgrove Township, Southern New Jersey. So you, in that type of uh, environment, you become uh, very used to uh, figuring things out on your own. You know, you don't have a lot of uh, manuals to work with, a lot of mentorship. You uh, figure things out in the field. So I, I had a pretty good industrial and mechanical background growing up. I was 16 years old, uh, preparing for college. And uh, my stepfather, who I lived with, died, I think he, right when I graduated. Um, so I had a choice. It was one of those crossroads in life of either continue on with education or uh, fulfilling my lifelong uh, dream of uh, running my own business. So uh, we sold the farm and I took a lot of the knowledge and background that I had and uh, started doing mobile phone installations for a company called Bell Atlantic. And it ultimately led me into telecommunications services uh, for uh, different various companies and the owners that used to have us install their uh, phones in their cars. Good old days. Yeah. Pre-Microsoft. Pre um, so it was a good time. It was pre-internet. So in 1992, it was, a, it was a really good time to get into the technology sector. So a lot of the, the trades that I learned as running a farm uh, transcended into running a technology company. Yeah, my dad, I remember, had that big, it was like a huge cell phone. I'm sure you remember with that antenna. It was like a gray. It was huge. Yes, I was the guy installing it. <laughs> yeah, before, uh, before there was... Uh, handheld, there was bag phones. And before there was bag phones, there was uh, car installations. So that's kind of what I got into. Uh, so it kind of was thrown into the work life, running a company at a time period where there was no real young entrepreneurs. You know, going back, what, 30 years now, it, it's, it's very common today. Back then it was not. In fact, I remember there was a time period when I was 21 and the closest person in age to me was 42. So, and we had, at one point I had 15 employees between the age of 42 and 65, oh my which God. were four more AT&T and Bell Atlantic people that were, you know, laid off and they were working for me. So that was a, that was a challenging time, you know, but it was one of those things you learn very quickly on a farm that you figure things out, you know, hard work will, will get you by, you know, and you know, you're just trained. You're the first one up. You're the last one to leave. You don't get sick. You don't fail. And, uh, you just have to get things done. Life depends on it. And it kind of moves right into the business world. Sure. Can you talk about life on the farm a little bit? You said you're up early. What were you managing? It was interesting. Like I tell people my childhood, like nobody, I didn't realize how different I was. You know, when you, when it's inherent to you, especially in Southern Jersey, we're not really a big farming community, but life for me was everybody else gets up for school and catches a bus. 
I got up three hours before uh, the bus came. You know, I might have to work, you know, fixing irrigation pipe or bringing grain to the, to the um, store. I mean, we, we did a lot of work before work. Sports was second, you know, during the time periods where I would have played sports or enjoyed playing sports was farming. So you're, you know, might be uh, harvesting your crops or taking care of uh, the animals. We had cows and horses and it was nice. It was a really, it was a great childhood, but a, a, a lot of work, you know, and it definitely took away from the education side of it, but it teaches you work ethic and it teaches you mechanical skills and trade skills that you just couldn't, a lifetime of trade skills I probably learned before the age of 20. Wow. So it's like from farm to tech. Farm to tech. Makes a lot of sense. It was very easy for me to take that knowledge of being handed a manual and, you know, a company, one of my large banks, you know, they had a large network phone system and, you know, it was just process to me, you know, how to, tra- how to troubleshoot, how to mechanically fix things, how you could use process of elimination, logic, um, all those things, whether I was fixing a tractor or motor, whether I was fixing a dryer or whether I was fixing a phone system or computer system, they were just very much the same skill sets. And still to this day, it's just process and logic. Did you manage a lot of people on the farm too? Is that how you were able to create a team at such a young age? Not no, actually, I was the only, probably the only one. We had some manual labor. Um, we created a team because at the same time there was a lot of there was a divestiture of the the Bell companies, the former telecommunications firms, and a lot of the people who worked in those firms were laid off. So it was a great opportunity for me who had access to um, companies needing my services to hire those people. So my mom, who was a teacher at the time, first grade teacher, she lost her tenure because she was taking care of my stepfather that had cancer. So we kind of woke up one day and we were like, well, we have no farm. You know, my stepfather died. She had no job. And we were like, well, we have to survive. So what about going down this telecommunications route? So we uh, tackled it together and we think we worked together side by side for 20 plus years. Um, but, you know, she, she took some accounting courses and I was the technology lead and we built the company off of the two of us. That's amazing. Is she still alive? She is. Yeah. She's, uh, she's been retired probably nine years now. Um, yeah proud grad grandmother and very healthy and very active and mind is very good and proud. But uh, yeah, she was a big instrumental uh, inspiration for me too. I'm sure she's so proud of you. Yeah. Because how many employees do you have now? We are probably close to 30 employees, full-time employees that we work in house, but our models changed. We've had, you know, 50, 60 employees at one point, but we, we do a lot with uh, outsourcing the right components. We take just high level skill sets in-house. So big part how we're structured is we have close to a hundred agents. So they're, they're companies that just represent Comtech systems and Comtech cloud. So they sell our services. So really sales and marketing and business development is outsourced essentially to those types of teams. And we have installation arms. As we grew and we went national, we decided it was more effective for the hands in the street to be associated with other companies that had a footprint across the country rather than us scaling up. So essentially, we have all the core here, the project management, um, the senior technology officials here, and whatever uh, resources we need to run the organization. And uh, some of the growth 
metrics that would hit our company or can be uh, our people can be grown uh, through uh, growing our channels and um, some of our subcontractors. How has technology changed over the years? I feel like it's changed pretty much every six to 10 years. We're, we've, we've, we've been in business 30 years, but we're really probably four different companies. So we have to stay at the forefront and we've trying to, we've taken stabs that haven't worked and it's part of our business culture, but we kind of take our shots at where we believe things are going to go. And if we fail, we, we have a model of failing forward and we've always been lucky and good and probably a lot to do with um, trying different things, but we've always been on the forefront of the technology where the business is going and our clients appreciate that. So we've went from telecommunications, phone systems, and we have, we've evolved. We did a lot of uh, managed services at one point. We were more in the IT realm, but we really found our footprint. We are, we are a very strong technical company. We help with business practices and telecommunications, transport, unified communications, collaboration. That's our wheelhouse. It's a really big part of the company today. It's our strength. Um, we're gaining clients every single day. Uh, no end in sight, but it's it's really where I see ourselves for the next five years. So does that mean your company didn't have to pivot in COVID? We didn't. We grew 30% in COVID, and, but it was in part, it was preparation. So we, we're in, we deal a lot with compliance. So one of the things when you deal with larger enterprise clients, they want to know that you've uh, exercised all your diligence looking at the what ifs. You know, it could be a business downturn. It could be a pandemic. It could be a disaster. So we not only wrote those plans, we prepared for those plans. We practiced those plans. We've implemented those plans. We did it way in advance of even having a pandemic hit. So, you know, developing a team used to working in a remote environment, um, developing key performance metrics around all your personnel so that they could work independently without having to worry about clocking in and clocking out. Um, the company could scale up in any capacity we want without ever having to worry about uh, hiring people that needed to come to our work. We have performance-based metrics. We have systems in place to manage them. Um, so when COVID hit, there was not only an there was not only uh, an immediate need to run in that fashion the organization, but there was also a need for the services and products that we sell, like the product we're using today. So helping companies collaborate better with their teams, helping them, you know, train them on metrics, train them on being efficient. Um, so, you know, our, our business grew, you know, to this day, I mean, our phone, I think we talked about this month. I mean, we probably have twice as many opportunities hit last month as we did a year ago to put in perspective. So doubling in terms of new opportunities hitting the system is big for us. Yeah. Does, it sounds like people are automating their systems more. Yeah, I think We've always said it, and I think it's starting to follow. Like I've always believed that the efficient exchange of information is the lifeline of any successful company. And the biggest cost factor is people. And if you can, not many business owners really dissect just how costly it is to have an inefficient staff or how much profit can be generated from making and helping their staff be more efficient. So when you consider the you know, 2,080 hours that somebody might work in a year and you consider how many employees you have and what 5% of productivity means, it's a big number. And collaboration tools, key performance metrics, 
um, helping those employees be happier, culturally happier, more positive, more efficient, um, tremendous impact. So that's sort of how our tools affect organizations. And on top of that, we're going to help clients bring in more business. And they see that, that we, we expose that just how much opportunity exists in the market if their company could exchange information with their potential uh, clients more efficiently. So interesting. So as a CEO, do you think going forward because of COVID, employers need to offer employees opportunities to be hybrid, work at home when they want, come into the office for more productivity or, or are there other ways? I think you're, I think we're going to find it and there's two, there's two types of employees. There's people who need to be a part of a system that's in-house, like warehousing and inventory and touching something. And then you have the professional side that you really have to change the way you're looking at people. Um, you know, I talk to my CEO groups and it's not just because our parents did something a certain way, the companies that will really survive are the people who are challenging the system. You know, the way Amazon did, the way people are selling things, the way Google approached things is it's different, right? So we say, why did we ever come to the office? Well, we came in to access things. You go, what? Systems that sit in the cloud, copier machines that we don't use anymore, filing systems that we're not supposed to use, right? Um, our, our financial systems are in the cloud. Our CRMs are in the cloud. We really, at one point, I looked out years ago and I said, we really come into this office to access everything that's outside this office. <laughs> so why are we really here? And you go, well, it's good for team approach. Well, what if you could create that whole team approach and create a good culture, but not have to physically be there? Because ultimately, when I was here and my staff was here and we all felt great about we were inside the building, I never saw them anyway because they'd be in different offices or different ends of the building. Right. So we really said, what can we do? What does it do for the company? One, it lets us scale exponentially. We can grab talent from all over the country. People have the flexibility. You know, it's a diverse workforce. We have challenges, you know, with, with our children, with, uh, you know, schooling that might be canceled, with doctor's appointments, with our own appointments. And the old environment where you had to try and get everything done on a day off or after five, it was complex. So the whole idea was how do we create an environment completely different than what we saw and just allowing people to come work for an organization and be treated much like a business partner. What if I taught them everything that we needed to do to be really successful? Like what are the metrics? Forget hours. But I know what would be successful within a given time period. But what if I said, I don't really care about the time period. What if you could be paid associated with something we believe is commensurate to your job duties, right? Give them the power to create their own time, right? And what we found is people were more efficient. They were more positive. They were more engaged. They took more ownership. Um, that flexibility, right? They could have, especially during COVID, when some parents had to be home, the kids, you know, homeschooling, um, they could do dual roles and still be super productive. And if they were bored on a Friday night, they could log in. Or if they didn't get their work done on a, on a weekday, they could log in on a weekend. Ultimately, it creates a very, a very good environment where the employees felt completely connected. It works with their home life. You're not likely to leave, lose employees. You're likely to attract other employees. And it created a much more cohesive culture. People see each other more through video. Um, it allowed for better collaboration, teaching people how to run the business better. Um, we could be prouder. I think what we're accomplishing is something most companies, you know, we could mirror this across almost any organization and they would run better. 
Yeah, it's so interesting to me. So are they using systems in place that you're providing for, for clocking and clocking out? Are you saying that's not even really needed anymore because, because of the freedoms that different companies are giving their employees and from working from home, it's just easier to jump online and, and do work? Yeah, I think I was always a big... Uh, I always disagree with, in general with just the whole clocking in and clocking out. I just never, never made sense to me. Like, what, are you really paying somebody to clock in and clock out? Like, that doesn't make you money. It doesn't make them efficient. It doesn't accomplish anything. I think that's something that was established 50 years ago and nobody challenged the system. The reality of it is we're talking about we're hiring people to produce and something, whether it's work or a product, right? So educating the people on what is actually expected within a given time period is why we actually give somebody a salary and why should we make any salary associated with any one person or position make it associated with productivity so it allows for bonuses productivity measurements people are incentivized to go after them so it's teaching people how to run a business associated with their one sliver right they can be put in a silo and said here's your job given given that autonomy to make those good decisions people are, are my people and a lot of our experiences um, they're excelling they're more productive um, they're doing far better than whenever I had them come in here to the office. So interesting. Yeah. Cause even for me, I always thought you had to work in a team in an office and I had plenty of millennials that worked for me and they would always want to work from home. This is before COVID. And I would always get mad and say they had to come in or they had to make up the time, but now I'm kind of seeing it differently because I've had to work from home. So I agree with you now, but for years, even yeah, like- if they teach the maturity. We had to deconstruct what we were taught, right? From generations of being told that people clock in and clock out. Um, it just, it's, it's not productivity. It doesn't work in today's environment. And it's going to get more complex. You know, we have more broken families today. You know, kids are working. There's a lot more homeschooling. There's a lot more moving parts, you know, healthcare, and just trying to hit all the metrics and all the things that parents and um, professionals need to do flexibility is paramount. You know who even said it's nine to five? Who who said Monday to Friday? When you take all those things away and you just equate that a portion of somebody's week could be pro- associated with producing a goods or services, and they can commit to that. That's how we associate a hiring, right? And it's fair. We don't do it in in such a way that they're they're taken advantage of. We do it in such a way where the employee. Um, like I'll give you an example, my salespeople, I don't ever say, you know, hours worked. It's productivity. They know their metric. It's leads and, and closes. They can determine how much they want to work. If they're golfing during the week or they have to take their kids to the school and they want to be take a day off, that's their call here. I do not ask them where they're working, what they're working on. They just know what the end result is, right? So that makes, but I, I don't have an issue with people saying we're not going to show up because ultimately through key performance metrics, you know who your performers are. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. Well, at least you learned it a lot quicker than me. <laughs> you know, because then I could have, I always thought millennials were the problem. And this is before COVID, but now I'm like, oh God, were they right a little bit? Yeah, different ways of looking at it. I don't know if there was a right or wrong. I think, I think we have to always challenge the system. We challenge everything, everything we do and why we're doing it. You know, is there a better way? Who started it? Why did they start it? What is there something different we can do, right? So we think if we're going to be exceptional, we're going to lead 
we surely can't do it by following. Very interesting. Well, thank you for teaching something. I just wish I learned it long ago because I was always like, you got to be in the office. You have to be in the office. <laughs> no, when we think, think about the product, the loss of productivity associated with just getting in your car, driving somewhere, um, you know, how restricted you are as an organization to just hiring talent. You know, especially for organizations like us, we're in Southern New Jersey. Maybe we are a, we're a growing technology firm and the talent could be an hour and 20 minutes away. And they might make a decision not to work at an organization like ours or the savings it has without investing in commercial real estate that you can actually put more of that investment into employees and culture than waste in, in, in environment and, and uh, office space. So those are some of the things that we thought of and, you know, it's working. And we don't have to make a commitment to geography. You know, our company now, we're worldwide. So we have offices or, or um, organizations that we support through, all throughout Europe, all throughout the United States, Canada, South America, very common to us. And just sitting here in our tools and resources can be all over the country helping. Yeah, I have another client that's in Bitcoin called VBit. And I'm on their marketing calls every week and they have employees from around the world. Serbia, you name it. They're head of marketing from Serbia. And I'm just so impressed with their staff, but they're all from different countries. And that made me also realize that you can have staff from anywhere. Absolutely. I see it. I mean, what we're doing here, you know, I have my controller lives in Florida. I have another guy that lives in New York. I have people who live, you know, it doesn't matter. I see them, you know, our video, whether I'm talking to them, you know, thousand miles away or a hundred miles away, it's all the same. The metrics are all the same. Um, it even gives us exposure to different time zones and different better levels of support for our clients. Yeah, I can see it absolutely working even internationally. If we had more of an international client base, we could easily go that direction and not really change the culture or company model much. Right. So interesting. Well, you definitely taught me something. I'm sure you taught others. Is there anything that you think, or what advice could you give to people to that would keep them driven because you're obviously a very driven person. I think do things for a reason. You know, when people, when I, when I get up in the morning, like and I work out or I say something, I always go, what, I always have a purpose, you know, and I'm very focused on my purpose. Like for me, what means the most to me, like my family, right? So when I'm working the hours, you know, some people say, why do you love technology so much? I'm like, actually, I don't. I'm like, it's great. You know, I, I enjoy working with businesses. I think technology is a huge part, underestimated part of running successful organizations. And I think my mind is that because I love helping people, it's easy for me to apply technology. What keeps me driven is knowing that the end result is, you know, I give myself the bandwidth to do the things that I want to do, right? I enjoy the outdoor sports. I enjoy recreation. I enjoy helping other companies. Um, I love my family. I want to provide for them. And, you know, as a result, the things I'm doing just flow naturally. Like I've never had a day where I woke up in the morning ever in my life farming or, you know, running this organization or any of my companies that I've ran that I said, I just don't want to go in today. I've never gotten sick. I've never had a sick day. I've never woke up and said, I have the flu. And I think like part of it is, you know, it's probably immunity, but part of it's, it's, it's drive. Like you just, when you work and you use, you grow up in that farm environment, 
you just never wake up and you say, I'm sick. It's, you just say, I can't get sick. It's just, it's just a way of life. And I think that, uh, that can't fail attitude just transcends, just becomes part of you. Yeah, for sure. You have to have that passion. Otherwise, why would you keep going? Yeah. That reminds me, you said you believe in doing good and giving back and you're involved in many charities. So talk about a couple or three of the charities that I'm thinking of that mean a lot to you and why. So we do a lot with charities. I, you know, I try and get my, my company and my staff, you know, I, I believe that you, you get from giving. I, I, I firmly believe it. I believe in the karma of life and I believe that I think it just gives you back a spiritual side it's something to giving that you do get fulfilled. Um, it's, it's, some, it's something I've experienced in my life and I, I find it amazing. Some of the greatest people I've met in my life, I always look, what's the source of some of the greatest things that have ever happened to me in my life? And I'm like, it's always one or two or three degrees separated. But when you really dissect it, it came from something I was giving, right? So it could have been a contact that helped be my biggest client. It could have been you know, meeting my wife, it could have been anything, but the source of it has always been giving. And I firmly believe that um, giving is probably one of the more underestimated gifts you have. Um, so Ranch Hope for Boys is something, uh, a good charity that we believe in. Um, this is a, a school that uh, tends to children and young kids under the age of 17 that may have um, been kicked out of a, a public school, right? It's a, it's a last chance environment. Um, it, you know, these kids are typically not afforded the same level of structure that other children may have had and helping their cause, you know, it's, it's a last chance for them. And um, it's not really known, but it's important, right? That people and businesses take ownership and to give back um, the walk, you know, it's another one where um, conception, you know, we to, to, for families, um, it's not really discussed. You know, we see things that affect families and we go, well, there's, there's an undertone and there's certain different types of uh, charities that everybody talks about, but there's a lot out there that, that are big issues. And um, we try and take a, take a lot of a, attention to those, maybe the ones that aren't so known, um, was another one we've done this year. Um, legacy foundation talking about mental health. It's, it's huge. The, the problems and it's getting worse, you know, and it, it, a lot of times it's the underprivileged, you know, that experience the most problems and broken families and it creates suicide and addiction. And uh, I actually sit on the foundation board for, uh, legacy treatment services and we help raise, money for the, the treatment for families, you know, for the underprivileged, and, and hopefully we make an impact. So yeah, a lot of it has to do with us as an organization, just trying to bring awareness to different causes and, and uh, hopefully make an impact. I thought it was interesting that you're sponsoring the Walk for Hope because it's May is National Fertility Awareness Month. Correct. Yeah. I mean, Especially, you know, I said to you another time, I think last week I was talking, like, it's one of those issues that you, you don't realize it's there from a man, right? 
I didn't realize till I went to my first event. And I'm like, wow, this is really an impactful issue that families face. Huge, right? It creates, it can create um, depression, divorce, anxieties, right? People, and it's not talk, people think it's something I'm not supposed to talk about, like something was wrong with me. And then you go there and you're seeing thousands of families experiencing the same thing, right? So it helps with counseling. It helps with research and development. And um, I think we do a lot of good. You know, we see a lot of smiling faces. And I think when people can really relate, and I think how fortunate I am, you know, with to have two children and I don't take that for granted. I never did. I, I found it like just a blessing that, I, you know, I found my wife and I had my two children, but I, I was very cognizant of the challenges we could experience and that many women and families do experience and the impact it has. Yeah, I find it so interesting just as a, as a man that you're aware of it. Because I think I told you I froze my eggs a few years ago and I posted it. I, I recorded the journey. I put it on YouTube and yeah, I noticed it's definitely something not talked about because first of all, men were clueless. They had no idea. They thought I was being a surrogate, all kinds of things. They didn't understand what I did. And then women would reach out and be like, I did that, but I didn't want to tell anyone. And, you know, thanks for sharing that. You know, it gives me um, hope. It doesn't make me feel like something's wrong with me or, you know, all kinds of things. So I just found it so interesting. It is. And it's sad, you know, it's almost because the woman conceives that it could be perceived that the woman has a problem, right? So you see businesses are run by men a lot, you know, disproportionately. And it's important that men are the ones bringing this to light. You know, I think it's one of the, it's an important venture for us, you know, to say, look, we, we share this journey. We share this problem, right? Every, everybody, it's very popular. It's probably popular within, you know, my counterparts with their staff. You know, I don't know the exact statistic on it, but I would best, I would rest assured if you have 20 or more employees, you, I think, you know, almost up to 10% have had an issue. So it's a big issue to bring awareness to. Yeah, I'd love to do more on that. May is just around the corner. I forget the date of the walk, but I'll make sure I promote it for you. Yeah, a good friend of mine, one of my best friends, Drew Poland and his wife, they had uh, issues that they went public with and Lynn... Um, helps sponsor this event and she does an awesome job. She's a great proponent and she brings the awareness and, you know, it, it helps, it helps not only raise money, but it, it's just a great, it's just a great cause. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I learned so much through the process, just doing it on my own. So I, and I, like, I think I've told you, I know a lot of women that have struggled or can't even have kids and I've seen them so upset and I think it's honorable that you're going out there and, and helping them. And I think it all will come back to you in a good way. Yeah. Giving back. It's a big thing. It's true. When you give, you do feel, you feel good. You feel great. I do. Yeah. I just don't think about it as much. You know, I think it's like natural to me in some ways, but then there's things that you could probably do like you're doing with so many boards that so many people can think about, especially if their CEOs are in positions where they can, they should really think about giving back more because I know I read a recent stat that so many charities are, are down employees because of COVID and it's sad. They need help right now. Yeah. And the people who are doing well need to step up and, you know, give back to the community. 
you know, do business with the community, um, do things for the community. Um, yeah, things come full circle. We all, we all rise together. That's true. Well, pay it forward, people. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate being on my podcast. I look forward to yours coming up soon and have a great rest of your week. Thanks, Jen. Appreciate you having me on. Well, that's it for now. Thanks everyone for joining us. Please reach out to me so I can feature you on my show. I do respond to everyone. You can find me on my Instagram at Jennifer Sherlock or my business Instagram at Jenna.com. And check out our new website coming soon, livewithoutanet.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to taking risks with you.